still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every It's time for us to get started this evening. Continuing our study of David and his Psalms. And I've got I've got stories for you tonight. Our psalm is Psalm 51 tonight. That's a, uh, probably one of the more familiar ones to us as it relates to the aftermath of David's uh, adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite. And him seeking repentance and forgiveness uh, from a compassionate and loving God. And so there's a lot of comfort in that text. And it's uh, one that certainly should appeal to us as people who are seeking for redemption through the blood of Jesus. And and so there's many ways that we need to relate to uh, that psalm for sure. We're going to go back and look at quite a bit of history um, surrounding that event and see some of the things that were going into that to see if we can't come to uh, the, the, the better understanding of where David's heart is, what's going on in his psyche, and, and how he comes to uh, this inspired psalm. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel, and really the last several chapters of 2 Samuel will be uh, an ongoing dramatic story. Beginning in chapter 9, we have that wonderful story of David responding with great kindness and affection to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Several weeks ago, we had talked about David and his relationship with Jonathan and how they made covenants with one another. And we find David fulfilling his covenant in a wonderful and beautiful way here with the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was a man who was disabled in both legs. He he did not have the ability to work. But David sees to it that he he has uh, his own inheritance that was due him from his grandfather and from his father, which seemingly up to this point had been withheld from him. And as I said, this... You know, we, we talk about David, and it's, it's been quite a roller coaster ride, as we've seen with him. I'm going, to, I'm going to now kind of present the, the rest of David's life as the trajectory of an arrow that is shot. There is great force behind an arrow that ascends up through the heavens, but at some point, the force of gravity takes over, 
And that, the flight path of that arrow is a great arc. I believe that 1 Samuel chapter 9, David is at the very peak of that arc. And as that trajectory continues, his life is going to descend into chaos. And we're going to see why. I mean, it's all of his own doing or his undoing. Um, but it is a remarkable story that we read about. But here in, in 2 Samuel 9, as I said, I think we, we find David at his best, best showing kindness to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, uh, and his covenant with his great friend Jonathan is, is fulfilled in every way. It's a wonderful story. I'm not going to take time to get into all of the details of that. And then you get into chapter 10, and it seems David is on a roll. He is, he's wanting to show kindness to uh, somebody else. But this time it is a foreign power. And there is some unknown benefit that they have shown toward David. And the king of Ammon has died, and his son has taken his place. And David, as a gesture of kindness, sends emissaries to, to go and be a blessing to them as he attempts to show kindness and sincerity. In verse 2 says, David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. We don't know what that kindness was, but David is repaying a favor. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hunan took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them. For the men were greatly humiliated, and the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. So this, this gesture of kindness is, is met with this humiliating act of insult, really, to these men. Remember when we talked about David uh, uh, feigning madness and letting his drool come down on his beard, and we, we said, what a... What a humiliating thing that would be for a man because the beard was something that was cherished as everything that a man was and represents manhood and all of its wonderful things. And here we have a, a, an indication that in that culture, to shave off half of somebody's beard, that would be one of the most humiliating things that they could do, as well as cut off their arm, garments so they're exposed, so to speak. I mean, so it's quite a shameful display that, that happens here. And, and, and David doesn't even want these men to be humiliated any further by showing themselves in public until their beards have grown back. He says, you just stay here in Jericho and lay low for a while until, until your glory has returned, so to speak. Well, as things turn out now, this becomes a, a great war between these two nations. And as they go to battle, there are others that become involved in the battle as well. So other foreigners, other enemies of Israel join in league with these Ammonites who 
who are enemies. And as David's kindness has now backfired against him, he's suspected of this conspiracy. This war ensues. And just to get to the bottom line of it, Israel prevails. David is successful in this military venture. And it seems that this is the time of David's life as he is enjoying all of the fruits of what it means to be a king, seemingly during these wars that David learned that as a king, he he could really forego all of the, the vigorous difficulty of actually engaging in the campaign of that military effort, but he could still enjoy the glory of it. In fact, as this war ensued and the battles were carried out and Joab and all of the other leaders and army is out there, David is is not too much hands-on in the army at this point. But when it comes to, it seems to the last decisive battle of this war, that's when David gets on his military garb and he leads the commander, leads as the commander of the army and he goes forward and he, uh, he wins the day. And so he has the glory of the, of the grand military champion. He had sent Joab and the army out up to this point. And now this kind of sets the scene for the next tragic tale in the life of David. In the next chapter, we find David, the king, living leisurely while the army is out engaged in battles, as uh, was their custom of this time. And here in chapter 11, David, while he is living leisurely as a king, he sees Bathsheba, lust is conceived in his heart, and he decides as the king that he is going to abuse his power as a king. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. If if you haven't got the sense of it up to this point, objectification of women is a cultural norm. Of the, in this day. Women were objects. They were, they were property used for negotiation. They were to be used for whatever purposes the, the, the man seemed to deem fit. And even in this shameful display, it, it's, it's almost an afterthought, the, the sin that David commits against Bathsheba, what we really focus upon in the narrative is David's sin against Uriah the Hittite. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And indeed, he did sin against Uriah um, in, a, in a terrible Way And it, 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 there's no positive way of looking at this thing at all. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. One of the most valiant of all of the warriors. 
one of the elite that numbered about 37 in one counting of that. 37 out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of warriors were deemed to be the mighty men of David. And Uriah is one of those. Elite, loyal. He's been with David since he was in the wilderness running from Saul. Distinguished in military service, capable, mighty in every way, loyal to David. And when Bathsheba announces to David that she is pregnant, well, we've got to fix this somehow. And so the conspiracy is, we will bring Uriah back home to Jerusalem from the battlefields, and we will try to deceive him and the community and everybody into thinking that this child is his and will live happily ever after, right? All right, so that's the plan. But that plan, of course, is foiled because of who Uriah is. Uriah has fierce loyalty to his king, to his nation, and to his brothers at arms. And when David feigns to get this military report from this mighty man, Uriah, he says, all right, good to hear everything's going well. Now go on home to your wife. Enjoy a little R&R in your time off. Well, Uriah doesn't say anything. He just leaves the palace. Verse 11 says, Uriah uh, gives an explanation. That's the explanation. But, but Uriah doesn't say anything. He just goes and he kind of camps out on the porch of the palace. He doesn't go home. And David finds out about this and he asks him, why, why did you not go down to your house? In verse 11, Uriah says to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. That was unthinkable for a valiant, loyal warrior like Uriah. Do you like Uriah? Something honorable about that man in some, so many ways. Well, that changes the conspiracy then. The plot has to change. There has to be some more people involved. So David arranges through Joab, the commander, for him to be sent back to the front lines and to arrange for his murder, basically. To, to make it look like it's, it's a casualty of war, but it's basically plotting his murder. You put him in the fiercest battle, and then everybody else kind of retreat. That's the plan. And so Joab goes along with that plan. If you learn anything about Joab tonight, <laughs> you don't like Joab too much. There's not a whole lot to like there 
in terms of a man of honor. He's a man of violence and bloodshed and revenge. For sure, maybe he's a man of his day. He's a great warrior himself, but the honor certainly is not there. But he, he complies with David's plan, but even in that, he's, he's concerned that uh, he's going to be criticized because that type of strategic plan really looks bad on a commander. You're going to get your people killed because you're being careless. And he's worried that even David is going to criticize him. So when he sends a report back the, uh, about this particular battle in which Uriah is killed, he makes sure that he speaks in a code that David understands why he did what he did. These were, these were not strategic tactics that any sensible commander would utilize But if you just follow up the whole detail by saying, and Uriah the Hittite is dead, Joab believes that it's going to be all right with David. And he will not be criticized. And Joab's instincts about that are exactly right. David gets that message. And David tells the messenger, you take this message back to Joab. Basically, don't be too concerned about that. These are things that happen in war. Be encouraged. The conspiracy has worked. So David reassures and encourages Joab, and all is well now. All is well. Verse 26 says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, She mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. So months transpire. She comes, becomes David's wife, lives there for the months of the gestational period. She gives birth to a son and they live happily ever after, right? Except for the next sentence says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. It should be evil in your sight as well. For for David, the king of Israel, who has been through what he has been through with his God and with his people to be diminished in this way. So, time elapses. And sometime after the child is born, chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes to David with a story, a parable, a fable of, kind, of, of sorts. And he tells David this despicable story about this ruthless rich man who is oppressing this poor man by taking his pet lamb and preparing it as a meal for his guest rather than taking from his immense flocks and herds. And David is outraged. Verses 5 and 6, David's anger burned greatly against the man, and 
He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who had done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And I think that he is just beginning his judgment of this vile human being who would do such a thing as that. When Nathan interrupts and says, David, you are that man. That is a story of you and Bathsheba and Uriah. You are the man. You are the one who has committed this despicable crime. You are the wealthy king. You are the one who has everything. And look what you have done. You have killed Uriah the man who does not deserve this. And there will be consequences. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Your humiliation is coming. There will be consequences. We talk about a ripple effect sometimes. When one action sets into action many other reactions. You throw a stone into the water and the ripples seem unending as it crosses that body of water. And that's what's happening here. These are the the first events of a stone being thrown into the water. And David is going to do his best to go and retrieve that stone. In fact, he's going to retrieve the stone. Just more ripples. Just more ripples. Just more consequences. And for the rest of his life, we see those consequences unfold in his family. And it is, uh, it's brutal, really, to think about. First, the child will die. And because of the sin that you have committed, you've given occasion for the enemies of Israel to blaspheme. It's one thing for a common man to be guilty of crimes and guilt like this, but when it is a man of authority and a man of, when it's the king of God's chosen people, that's a, that's a, there's a whole greater magnitude of effects that ripple from that. So we find that beginning in the next chapter, David's son. Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's, David's other son, full sister. 
And Absalom buys his time for two years, but then Absalom kills Amnon in a devious plan. This is David's family. This is David's family. And I want you to consider this. How's David going to deal with these issues? Does David have the moral authority to deal with these issues effectively? No, he's, the moral high ground has been surrounded, or I mean surrendered. And it is so very difficult to regain high moral ground once you surrender it. Two years have gone by, but David is not in a position to lead his family in a productive and positive way. And so Absalom, following this, he goes on the run. He flees to Geshur, and he's there for three years. So months and years are going by, but the turmoil is unending. David is heartsick over this, and He wants him to come back, but when he does come back, he doesn't want to see his face. And so Absalom lives in this exile from the king in his own homeland. Joab, of all people, tries to remedy this situation, to bring Absalom back. He he contrives a plan. We'll talk some more about this uh, perhaps next week. Similar to Nathan, he he hires a woman to come and tell a story, and it's Pretty elaborate. Maybe we'll not take the time to get into all of that, but basically it's to show David that he needs to have compassion for his own son, Absalom, and welcome him back. Well, David does welcome him back after, I said, like I said, a couple of years, uh, but there are some limitations that Absalom finds unacceptable. Absalom is, uh, is a remarkable character within himself, highly charismatic, quite a a charming individual, obviously, super good-looking. He is able to persuade people to his viewpoint, it appears. And he takes advantage of the fact that David has lost the moral high ground. And he criticizes David openly before the people, and the people are persuaded And ultimately, Absalom revolts and sets himself up as king. And of all places, he goes to Hebron, where David was first anointed, the king of Judah. And in Absalom's revolt, David has lost the hearts of the people. And he feels that he must flee. Again, David on the run. In chapter 16, we find Absalom humiliating David by taking his concubines publicly, thus fulfilling Nathan's prophecy about his public humiliation. And a civil war ensues, again exposing the, the fragile hold of, the, of, of that was holding this nation together. Ultimately, Absalom will be killed by guess who? Joab. Now, remember who Joab is? Joab is the son of David's sister, his nephew, 
That would mean Absalom is his cousin. And he uses three spears to pierce his heart while he's hanging in that tree. That's who Joab is. And David mourns bitterly over his son. He attempts to reunite the nation and to heal the wounds of this great division. Even among those who had sided with Absalom, he, he brings them into his kingdom once again, including uh, Zadok and uh, the man's name that I can never pronounce correctly. Uh, I need Tim to pronounce it for me. Uh, Abiathar, that's the one, that's it, Abiathar, that's his name. The, the priest, he had, he had gone over to Absalom's side. Well, David tries to put him back in his position. He, David actually replaces Joab with Amasa, who was Absalom's commander. Joab later kills him as well. That's who Joab is. And there are others as well. And as David's life is coming to a close, his other son, Adonijah, the older brother of Absalom, I'm sorry, the younger brother of Absalom, who is now apparently the eldest of all of those that remain of David's son, he exalts himself and he appoints himself king over Israel. And Joab supports that and... Abiathar, those syllables are hard for me. I don't know why. It's a mental block. Abiathar also supports um, Adonijah in this. David has not planned for this time. He has not led the people to know that Solomon is to be the next king. And so um, Adonijah, though, has a notion about that somehow. Because at his coronation, he doesn't invite Nathan the prophet, who is particularly loyal to David. He doesn't invite Solomon, the other son of David. He doesn't invite David's mighty men, who are loyal to David. He only invites his hand-chosen people. Nathan, the prophet this time, scrambles into action and arranges for Bathsheba to go to David and intercede on Solomon's behalf so that Solomon will be anointed. So we have competing coronations happening in Israel and trumpets blowing announcing the king here and trumpets blowing announcing the king here and we're just going to see how this all works out, basically. And as it works out, David's, um, uh, David's stamp of approval on Solomon is effective enough for Solomon to prevail and to become the king, which sets up a very dangerous situation for Adonijah and all of those who were sided with him. Chapter 2 of 1 Kings tells us that Adonijah ultimately is going to be killed um, by his brother Solomon. For, for his lack of loyalty to David. Abiathar is going to be banished and lose his place as a priest. Joab 
is going to be killed by his cousin, Solomon, who is now king. All of this family turmoil sprouting from this moment when David decided that he was going to serve himself instead of his God. With sins so great, it's hard for us to imagine. Can those sins be forgiven? The law of Moses said that when you commit adultery, the penalty is death. The law of Moses says when you murder, the penalty is death. That is what justice would be for David. In Psalm 51, David's not pleading for justice. He is pleading for mercy, forgiveness. He is contrite and he is repentant. There's no doubt about it. But as we read this familiar psalm, think about all of those things that are in David's heart when he comes to God and says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part thou wilt make known wisdom. There are a three sets of three words that I want you to see. Nine words that are connected in this section of this psalm, in, in these first six verses. Actually, the first few verses. Um, the word transgression, iniquity, and sin. That's how David describes his place in this. He's committed transgression, sin, and iniquity. And here's what he's asking about these things. Here's what I want you to do about those things, God. I want you to blot it out. I want to be washed. I want to be cleansed. Those three words. Blot out, wash, and cleanse. They're interesting to read the definitions of all of those and how those come into play. We don't have time to talk about all of that right now. But then the next three words I want you to see are the three words that he attributes to the, the qualities of God as he does this. And they are the words gracious, loving kindness, and compassion. And really, that, that's what this psalm is about. It is because of what God is. What defines him? It is because God is what he is that makes repentance what it is. And David puts that on full display in this. His repentance is to be washed thoroughly from my iniquity and cleansed from my sin and, 
The transgressions are ever before me. His mind is occupied forever with his sin. And although he has sinned against Bathsheba, although he has sinned against Uriah, he knows that it is his sin against Jehovah God that makes the difference. And so when he says, I have sinned against thee only, and don't what is evil in thy sight, he is suggesting that is what is of preeminent importance in all of this. And God, you are justified when you judge me. He talks about his own sin as, and, and I believe it's an exaggeration of his sin as he talks about being born in iniquity. We don't have time to get into all of that, but let me just read the rest of the psalm with you. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, And do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach the transgressors thy ways. The sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. By thy favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered. On thine altar. Thank you so much for your uh, kind attention this evening. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in north central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before.